but there's also some amazing, pretty foundational changes that are happening that could actually support a more sustainable healthcare system in the long run. This is the ACO Show, a podcast about value-based care and the people who are making it happen. I'm Joe Schumpkraut. For this show, I spoke with Dr. Amal Navathe. Amal is a physician and health economist, the co-director of the Healthcare Transformation Institute at the University of Pennsylvania, a commissioner of the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, or MedPAC, and co-founder of Embedded Healthcare. We spoke about how the U.S. health system may be able to make permanent changes for the better following the COVID-19 outbreak, and the role behavioral economics can play in improving healthcare outcomes and containing costs. We also dug into the founding of his new startup, Embedded Healthcare. Enjoy. Welcome to the ACO Show. This is Joe Schunkweiler. I lead adoption and training at Allidade, and I'm very pleased to have Dr. Amal Navathe with me today. Thanks for joining us today, Amal. Thanks for having me, Joe. So I would be remiss uh, to not discuss uh, or lead off with, I should say, uh, your recent op-ed in the New York Times that you co-authored with your colleague at Penn, but also your co-founder at Embedded Healthcare, uh, Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel. So uh, can you tell us a bit about the op-ed and why you guys decided to, to write that? Sure. So the, the topic of the op-ed was, you know, we're obviously in unprecedented times here, this COVID crisis, coronavirus crisis. And, uh, and on one hand, you know, it's been amazing to see the physicians and hospitals and healthcare workers uh, as our heroes. At the same time, we thought it made, us, uh, it, it made sense to take a step back and say, you know, what is happening in our healthcare system? There's a lot of changes that are happening to support the immediate response in the short term. But there's also some amazing, pretty foundational changes that are happening that could actually support a more sustainable healthcare system in the long run. And I think one of the core pieces that really motivates this, uh, that motivated that piece is if you think about what we've been trying to do over the past, say, decade after the Affordable Care Act with uh, Medicare's Innovation Center, with the different types of alternative payment models, value-based payment models, uh, you know, either private insurers have, have uh, rolled out accountable care organizations, multiple different types of programs to try to improve the value of care. Fundamentally, what have we been trying to do? We've been trying to shift the way that the health system produces health outcomes. And, uh, and it's been hard to shift practice patterns. You know, we have innovation center models from Medicare that have two to 3% impact, and we cheer them as huge, as, you know, real successes. And here, what we found fundamentally is that the health system has the capacity to change in really big ways. It's been amazing to watch. And so I think we need to recalibrate. We need to recalibrate our expectations. We need to recalibrate how we think about the future. What we have found out here is that the health system can save the future of medicine in the US. The question now is how do we make sure that it doesn't unwind itself back into the way that healthcare used to be? We preserve the aspects around efficiency, around telemedicine that are really good for patients. And then we systematically do this so it's not been so it's not forever in an ad hoc way that we've had to do it in the context of this crisis. And so that's what really that op-ed is about is, you know, how do we, how do we allow the system to unwind in places where we want it to unwind? And how do we ensure that we retain portions that are really patient-centered and cost-efficient for the sustainability of our health system going forward? It reminds me a bit uh, when I, um, I, I used to work in the United States Senate um, and we used to say all the time, oh, things go slow, things go slow. 
until they go really, really fast, you know, until you need, you have an economic crisis, or in this case, a, a public health crisis. And you can get, you know, the, the, the processes and the regulators and everyone else, you know, rowing in the same direction, but it's, it, it takes something on this scale often to do it. Yeah, I think it's phenomenal. I mean, so let's take telemedicine as an example, right? So suddenly we've had this amazing rapid uptake of telemedicine. You know, my my own son's pediatrician, for example, did a video visit. You know, four months ago, there was no option to do a video visit for her to take a look at a, a rash, right? And now, now we do it. It's very patient-centered, saved us a ton of time. We, we got what we needed and we're moving along with our day. And so I think it's it's a good question to actually take a step back. So the technology was there, right? The patients clearly would have benefited from it. Why wasn't it happening, right? And I think there's really two core reasons for that. I think one, there's there's an inertia, there's an activation energy, you know, pick, pick your metaphor here. Uh, but this is from behavioral economics to suggest that we have to find a way to get people to invest and overcome the status quo bias to adopt a new way of doing things. But it's psychologically very costly. It's hard, especially for a clinician, in this case, our son's pediatrician, who's seeing 20, 25, 30 patients a day. I mean, it's it's hard to find the time to come up the curve on something new. And secondly, especially if it's not compensated or incentivized in the correct way by a health insurance company. And so unless we right-size our payments and we think about what's really good for patients, in the long run, in this case, it's a it's a pretty proximal outcome. So here, you know, a, a good short term visit is great with great access. But I think as we zoom out on the healthcare system, it's much more about healthcare outcomes and reductions of healthcare disparities. Unless we really focus on those things as as the overall structure of the incentives of the system, we're not going to achieve those outcomes. And so that's why I think telemedicine is just this amazing metaphor to use right now. Right? We had a real strong case for people to suddenly shift over, right? A pandemic, no less. And then secondly, a lot of the payers have rapidly accommodated and said, okay, we're gonna allow you to, to be reimbursed for tele telephone visits that you wouldn't otherwise be reimbursed for. And unfortunately here, it's also happening because there's no opportunity cost. So there's no way for them to get that revenue otherwise. But I think if we could have right-sized that from the beginning, then maybe we could have achieved some gains. Here now we've overcome that activation energy. So let's get it right. So that way we don't go backwards where we lose all of that activation, all that progress in terms of coming over that activation energy should never be unwound. We should find a way to, to align the financial and economic model for primary care doctors and other specialist ambulatory physicians to make this work for perpetuity. In that op-ed and the the ideas in it, um, and I definitely recommend it to anybody listening to this. It was a, I, I've, I saw it on your your Twitter feed. I don't have a New York Times subscription anymore, unfortunately, which I think I should renew. But um, yeah, very interesting, very timely, certainly. Um, but also, I think as a segue into the work you're doing now, or in addition to all the other things that I listed off there that you're doing at Embedded Healthcare, um, you know, clearly an op-ed of that caliber in in a publication like the New York Times with Dr. Emanuel. Um, fits really nicely with all the work that you've done in healthy economics and policy and clinical medicine um, and transformation and, and, and the like. But how does embedded healthcare fit in that portfolio of work? 
Yeah, so you know, embedded healthcare has really been an outgrowth of the work that Zeke and I have been doing for a number of years, partnering together with health insurance companies and health systems and physician practices in the real world. And I think we, you know, we are big believers in the idea of scientific evidence. And so, you know, we both, of course, have our primary homes career-wise in the, the academy, in the academic medical center and in the school of medicine. And so it's a great way to generate evidence and to be really close to the greatest scientific advances. But at the same time, I think both of us have also lived outside of academy, so uh, of academics. So Zeke, for example, as, as you all probably know, is in the White House and the Obama administration is one of the chief architects of the Affordable Care Act. I've been in the private sector a few times. And I think one thing that we've learned through those experiences is scientific evidence doesn't necessarily translate directly into impact, obvious impact at the business level when organizations are not, they're not necessarily trying to find the best scientific ways to do things, but rather they're trying to solve their real world problems on a day-to-day -day basis. And so what embedded healthcare is really an outgrowth of a concerted effort over the past five years that Zeke and I have made to see how we can take the best science from behavioral economics and traditional economics and medicine and health policy and translate it into scalable solutions that can work for health insurance companies and health systems and physician practices and other stakeholders who are trying to improve the functioning of our health system. And was there an aha moment where you thought, oh, this makes more sense as a private sector, sector innovation, excuse me, than a uh, think tank style project, maybe even a really well-funded one that really that the, the best angle was to go uh, where the activity is um, outside of the traditional regulatory or academic structure? Yeah, great question. So, you know, I can think back, there's there's a couple of aha moments along the way. So I, I, I do distinctly remember several years ago going to Zeke's office and saying, in this one aha moment, you know, we need to do something big here because trying to organically grow this in a university environment is not going to be the right way to scale these ideas to impact. I think that was the first the first impetus to start working on what eventually became embedded healthcare and there we spent a lot of time developing a concept around what has come to come to fruition alongside embedded healthcare which is the healthcare transformation institute at penn which is really oriented or again around taking this translation of scientific ideas into solve real business problems so it's not it's a distinction from what a lot of our colleagues do. I think it's important to recognize there's a lot of people at Penn and other institutions who do pragmatic trials, for example, where they're doing randomized trials in real world settings. The difference here is that we're really trying to solve organizational business problems effectively, not, uh, not trying to generate scientific evidence as the primary purpose of our activity. It's an important part of what we do. And, and that scientific evidence generation portion sits within the Healthcare Transformation Institute at Penn. What later came about is as we really started to think more, uh, more about how to scale the ideas and less about how to translate them and test them in the real world, again, trying to solve these organizational challenges, that's when it, we realized that a nonprofit institute or a nonprofit think tank is not going to be the right engine to scale. And we got, frankly, we got a lot of advice. There was, uh, there was a number of different philanthropists and, and entrepreneurs who we spoke with. So for example, we've had multiple conversations with Bill Gates. We had multiple conversations with uh, the Peterson Center for Health Reform in New York. Uh, we talked to a number of other 
uh, leaders. And I think we realized along the way that to really scale something and not be knocking on doors and convincing people that, hey, you should do this, but rather to know that we can convincingly create commercial value and that commercial value will then be the engine of adoption. We realize that you know it actually has to have a business case and a business model around it to be successful. And that's why we ended up forming Embedded Healthcare as a specific entity focused on trying to do the commercial scaling of this. And no surprise uh, that you know uh, you're close to the folks at Alidaid um, in that I'm I love companies that are able to marry the best of multiple worlds. You know the best of of a really um, diligent, rigorous academic background with the government know-how and the regulatory knowledge, but with that idea, as you said, to, the, there's a commercial enterprise and many commercial enterprises that are engaged here. It's a huge chunk of our uh, GDP and a big part of our economy in the U.S. So you actually can't ignore any one of those pieces. Um, and it seems like you guys have been able to uh, strike the balance really well thus far. Yeah, I mean, so I think a couple of things are worth noting. So I think, you know, I, I'm trained as an economist. And so I, I will say that, you know, an economist is trained to think that uh, the value that we create in the economy can be captured in the context of, you know, whatever type of enterprise. So a for-profit enterprise can have, can still generate a lot of value to society. And in fact, you know, the, the the value, for example, that we place on an iPhone is basically all of us who choose to buy it for the given price, we're valuing it at that much. So I think there is an economic rationale for, for why we build and scale ideas in certain ways. The other piece I think that's probably the most important thing, honestly, is that we're extremely mission-driven. Uh, we're mission-driven, I, I would say, perhaps even to a fault, some have told us. So Importantly, I think we actually didn't, to your point, start out thinking that this is uh, needs to be a startup commercial entity. We started out thinking about what the organization really needs to accomplish, and hence it's a mission-driven organization. And I think you know over time, as we're as we scale and get our feet under us and and are able to demonstrate uh, real impact in a number of different domains, we're also very committed to taking on projects with you know. FQHCs or uh, managed Medicaid plans, populations of uh, of patients who are served by certain you know safety net hospitals or what have you. I think we're we're very committed to the mission orientation of this, and I would say, you know, number one, our goal is to try to make the the system more efficient so it's more affordable at high quality. But I think a right alongside a, a co primary objective is to make uh, healthcare more equitable. And so that's a really important piece of our mission as well. And you know, you've you've really relied upon uh, the principles of behavioral economics based on the the research that I've done um, in founding embedded healthcare. And clearly, as you you referenced your background as an economist, um, how would you describe behavioral economics to someone who may not be as familiar with it? Yeah, I think it's a I think it's a great question. You know, the behavioral economics. Uh, progress or advance that we've made has happened relatively recently. I think it's important to recognize that the founders really of the field of behavioral economics are not economists. Uh, they were two psychologists. You know, they had a very fundamental insight, which is, you know, the way that humans make decisions is not consistently rational. So one, it's not consistent. And also it's not consistently rational. In fact, it can be predictably irrational. And so there are a number of ways in which 
we as humans make or take mental shortcuts to try to make sense of the world and to try to to make decisions in a way that's not overly burdensome. And so that's the key insight of behavioral economics that has now spawned a number of different applications, healthcare just being one one domain in which we can apply behavioral economics. You you reference some of your um uh, some of the the folks that are really doing exceptional work for the folks that really need it across the country, FQHCs, uh, Medicaid managed care. But what is what does your customer engagement look like, if you can say, uh, relative to some of those principles that you just discussed? Sure. So so you know we work with health systems, uh, including the physicians, and we also work with health insurance companies, and sometimes we work with uh, integrated delivery systems as well, and. What, so what we're really focused on is largely on the clinician side, and we focus on two domains. So one domain is if we think again about the behavioral economics, so think about how clinicians and hospitals and physician practices actually have to make decisions and the environments in which they make choices. How can we make financial models work better for them, right? And so there's you know, we know things, again, from behavioral economics around how people are predictively irrational. So for example, you know, giving people data, the way you actually give people data can really be used as a way to influence their behavior in a positive way, right? And the way that we typically give data is we think that the information itself is valuable and will change behavior. So we actually did this together with a uh, a health insurance company in Hawaii, the Blue Cross Blue Shield Plan of Hawaii, actually, Hawaii Medical Services Association. And we actually randomized physicians within their primary care payment model to either get feedback on their performance alone or to get feedback on their performance relative to their peers. So these are not peers from California or peers from the East Coast. These are peers around them working in their same organization. And, and we showed them their quality scores and they showed them their own quality scores. And what we found is that giving the peer feedback and the way we specifically gave the peer feedback actually improved quality scores in a statistically significant fashion. And so what we've done now is we've sort of taken those insights and now we're developing products to be able to scale that within the context of other organizations so they can optimally harness data. And this is in the context, this is a, actually a non-financial uh, example within a broader financial model. But the idea here being, again, that understanding the psychology of how humans, individuals, not necessarily just clinicians or physicians, the way how they think, we can actually design models and interventions that help them make better choices. This also comes to bear in the context of payment models. So if we think about the constraints that Medicare has, unfortunately it has a lot of constraints in how it's put forth its models. So you guys know the Medicare Shared Savings Program very well at Allidade. One of the challenges is you get an distributed population and then you get a bonus check or a penalty you know, months and months and months after all of the behaviors that have actually gone in into producing those outcomes. And what we know from behavioral economics, again, is a principle called immediacy, which is, and, and we actually, you know, anybody who's been uh, the parent of a small child also knows that, you know, if for a human, if they do something bad and you give them a penalty right away, or if they do something good and you give them a reward right away, they respond much more strongly to that reward and they're much more likely to be influenced by it. So at the risk of, of uh, making people sound a little bit too simplistic, 
you know, all of us humans are like that. And the way that Medicare share savings models and other, other types of payment models are set up where there's not really a tight link between the reward, the incentive or the feedback or what have you and the behavior, which is, you know, ordering that colonoscopy or getting that A1C under control for your diabetic patient, that lack of a link there is a big problem. And so those are the key types of frictions that we're working hard on. As you were as you were talking about the example from Hawaii, I was really struck by another model that I'm sure you thought about as you were developing that. Um, uh, I believe it was energy usage when you showed what your on the your electricity bill or your gas bill. If they showed you what your usage was like versus your neighborhood, and sort of placed it in that context, that it found to have an impact on how you used energy and you were more cognizant of um, just being a better steward with that resource. Is that the kind of thing that you were thinking about when you developed that? Yeah, that's right. So actually what you're ref referencing, the, the most famous of those experiments is called the O-Power experiment. And and so you're right. I mean, these these principles can be used in uh, a, much, a bunch of different domains. I think you know, one of one of the reasons that we think it's particularly important to do in the context of, of clinicians, uh, but also challenging, is that you know there's a, sort of a couple of different things I'll highlight that's different than, for example, the consumer example that you gave, right? So, in in the world of medicine, one advantage we have is we have really strong professional norms, right? So. Uh, we all, you know, there's a professional standard. We all take the Hippocratic Oath. As part of our board certification, we take exams. We're supposed to have a minimum level of competency. We're measured against that competency multiple times. We have to maintain our credentials. I can keep going on and on and on. So there's strong professional norms for competency and achievement. And so in the clinical world, then, there's great opportunity for us to be able to use for example, norming type of it, you know, norming or social norming, peer norming type of interventions, because we are trained as a community to be very mindful of being part of the part of the professional norm. And so, so that makes it powerful, right? On the other hand, what makes it really challenging is that unlike in a lot of other disciplines, right? So take the example of O power, right? In general, I think it's pretty clear wasteful energy usage is bad. The more energy I use, the worse it is for the entire grid and everybody around me and pollution and what have you. There's a pretty, it's a pretty, uh, you know, straight linear relationship between more is and bad. In the context of healthcare, exceptions are often the norm, right? Rather than a given pattern. That's and great, so great. it's very difficult to go tell your oncologist that, you know, just don't order a CAT scan on your patients who have, you know, early stage breast cancer. Uh, because guess what? Many times it's actually very appropriate. It's the right thing to do for the patient. And so trying to develop these types of interventions, these models to help nudge clinicians to do the right thing or to incentivize them to do the right thing, it's actually very context dependent and very complicated. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons if we could have, believe me, you know, five years ago, we would have put out a bunch of things on a website and said, hey, guys, just go use this and we're done. We can make the, the health system more efficient. But I think what we've realized through all of our work is that actually so many of, you know, healthcare is very local. The local market, the local context really matters a lot. 
healthcare decisions, as I said, exceptions are often the norm. And so we have to build robust platforms and products that, that actually make sense more often than they don't. Otherwise, we're going to hit a behavioral problem again, which is, you know, if you screw up twice for a clinician, they're, they're going to distrust anything you say. And whether you're right for the next eight or 10 times after that, they're not going to believe a, a single thing that your product or clinical decision support system says after that. So, you know, we have to, we have to be mindful and judicious about how we use these strategies. And in fact, in the context of clinical care, because the stakes are high, number one, and number two, it's complex. You know, we have to be thoughtful and careful and deliberate about it. What I've found is it's particularly hard for physicians, particularly in a, you know an academic environment like the University of Pennsylvania or, or uh, Columbia Presbyterian, where I was a, a surgical resident. Um, it's and, and understandably, it's hard for them to to see beyond their own lens uh, on the process. So, you know, when I've had the pleasure of discussing the kind of work we do at Allidate or value based care or value in care in in general with a group of academic, you know, coordinary care physicians, these super super specialists, um, it gets exactly at that principle that you were just referencing. You know, more liver transplants though really expensive, are better, you know, and particularly great if you're the top liver transplanter in New York or on the East Coast or whatever it is. So um, it's, you know, it, it really speaks to the need uh, of the kind of work you're doing, it sounds like, at Embedded Healthcare, because it's not as simple as uh, that that one-to-one -one relationship on a electricity bill. Um, so, yeah, I think you 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 really laid that out well there and there are, are real challenges in the in clinical medicine to put that into action yeah t totally agree with you i mean i think uh you know for the sake of time i, I won't give you uh my fifth and sixth and seventh examples but there, <laughs> there's a there's a lot out there i think that we could keep talking about so one one thing that this gets back to that you um clearly value at embedded healthcare is this idea of physician-centered behavioral design or something being physician-centered in your approach. So how do you reconcile the need to get to these outcomes with all the, and this may get you to your sixth and seventh example, so maybe this is a tactic on my part, but because <laughs> um, as we just, as our discussion just showed, it's not, it's a balance, right? Like getting between um, what an individual provider in any clinical setting knows in good faith they want to do or should do based on the patient that's sitting in front of them and these larger issues about cost and quality and and you know how the system works together so you know maybe put simply what does physician centered behavioral design mean at embedded healthcare and and why is it so important to your company yeah so so i think you know the first important thing i th i would i would argue about embedded healthcare is you know we're not a technology company I wouldn't even describe us necessarily as a healthcare company. You know, we're we're a behavior change company, right? That's that's what we're really focusing on. That's what our products do. And and so I think when we think about this and we think about the individuals who we are trying to to influence into higher value practice patterns, it's oftentimes, I will say it's not always, but it's oftentimes the physician. And I think, you know, the the three co-founders, so Zeke, myself, and Simeon Schwartz, the third co-founder. We're all physicians, and I don't think that's by accident. I think it's because we, you know, feel I think a lot of 
the additional burden that is placed by value-based payment models and other higher value activities that are just expected of physicians and physician practices. We feel that personally and we feel that viscerally, right? Like, is this really fair? Can we really ask a primary care clinician to manage 128 metric quality program for their 2000 person panel if they're you know not supported by a bigger system and they practice in i'm just going to make up something rural iowa right that feels that feels one unfair but i think from a behavioral perspective it feels like it's so challenging that it's not effective it feels ineffective and so a big part of what we're after here is to bring our physician experience to understanding how medicine is actually practiced at the point of care to say, let's actually make reasonable requests of clinicians. And if we can build products and technology and other services that are help the clinicians make the best choices possible, sometimes it means that the choice doesn't even have to come from the clinician themselves. Oftentimes it's not at their pay grade. We can do it with a scheduler. We can do it with a medical assistant. We can do it with some other mechanism. And, and so that's a big part of it. And let me give you an example. So, you know, one of the things that we, gosh, we hear this all the time when we're talking to, to particularly with other technology companies or other vendors out there in, this, in the space of uh, healthcare. You know, we hear, you just got to, or even health insurance companies for that matter, we hear, you just got to get it in the workflow. You just got to get it in the workflow. It has to be in the workflow. Right. And so being in the workflow has become this, you know, holy grail of getting things to work. And, uh, you know, more recently, we've been working with some companies in the context of uh, something called the real time benefit check and in the context of generic prescribing. And so the idea is, you know, real time benefit check. So if I want to know how much something is going to cost my patient, uh, I can use a real time benefit check tool that might integrate with my electronic health record. And it will then tell me, for example, that I'm going to make up something here. So, you know, branded atorvastatin or Lipitor is going to cost 50 bucks. And if I use the, the generic, it's going to cost four bucks. And by knowing that based on my actual patient's benefits, I might be able to help make better decisions for them from an affordability standpoint. Well, you can imagine here that that also creates an opportunity for us to try to uh, nudge clinicians or make it easier for them to prescribe generics in general. And so, we, you know, we have I've been working on this problem. And I think, you know, again, this mantra of in the workflow comes up. And what we have found is there's suites and tons, you know, there's tons of uh, tools and solutions that embed within the workflow, quote unquote, of, of a doc like me ordering a Torvastatin. So I type in a Torvastatin 80 milligrams and poof, it pops up. And then I have to click through you know, 35 different screens before I can actually order a Torvastatin 80 milligrams for my patient. And that is being billed as, quote, in the workflow, because in some sense it is, right? So to get to the end point, I have to go through that, I have to navigate that uh, set of choices and those windows in, in the electronic health record. But to a clinician like me, that's, that's the exact opposite of in the workflow. Right. That's very disruptive to my workflow because right. now a task that I could do while I was talking to a patient or a patient's family member. And, you know, I had learned the muscle memory enough to be able to order a tour of 80 milligrams and hit enter and be done with it. Now, all of a sudden it takes three or four minutes and I have to pay attention to the screen and I have to lose eye contact with the patient. And 
that's not good for the patient. It's not good for me. Totally, you know, in workflow, but actually very out of workflow. And so this is an example, and I could, again, give you tens and tens of examples of these kinds of elements, which are, you know, just to take a step back, these are well-intentioned types of interventions or products or solutions, you know, trying to get people to bring a real-time information about how much things are going to cost for patients, make healthcare more affordable, help clinicians and patients together to make the right decisions. So these are very well-intentioned, but I think at the end of the day, our view on it would be they are not physician-centered behavioral design. They're not understanding how a clinician actually has to make decisions in the context of a patient encounter. And they're not supporting the path of the least resistance is the usually the right decision. They're not supporting that, that tenet, which I think is a tenet of physician-centered behavioral design in the context of clinicians. And so that's, that's hopefully illustrative of what I mean by that and why you know, we're, frankly, we're obsessed with this concept. Like we have to make this really easy on clinicians. That's the way that we're actually going to get practice change. Yeah, I knew, I love it. I knew I'd get another example, at least another example. <laughs> my, I'll call that a success uh, on my part. <laughs> so it, what's what's next for embedded healthcare? So you you recently went public with the 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 company and you know you're you're out there in the marketplace but what's you know what's the what's the one year look ahead for you guys yeah so so for us you know we're uh we are very actively working with our customers and uh, at the same time you know we're building products so to speak um in in parallel and uh, and so you know what's next for us is is really to to complete two core domains of work that we have and I, I started to get into this and I took you guys to the Hawaii example. So I may have made it a little more confusing, but really there's two core domains that we're working on. You know, one is uh, how do we make the design and administration of value-based payment models more physician and practice centered? And so this, for example, is, you know, a primary care capitation model, uh, a bundle payment model for osteoarthritis and joint replacement. You know, there's a number of ways in which we can make these models more physician-centered in their behavioral design, if you will. And, and so that first, uh, one of the first goals that we have is to really deploy a product um, that can be scaled, you know, that can, that can work in a bunch of different markets and a bunch of different settings uh, to make this much easier for practices and really help payers and in, in their objectives around affordability be successful in driving the healthcare costs down so that way we can get lower premiums and we can get more uninsured people insured and we can make uh, health insurance much less expensive for people. So that's kind of core goal number one. The second goal is there are a number of different decisions that we make on, uh, we clinicians in particular make on a daily basis that have an additive effect on the cost of healthcare. And some of these things, as you may recall, I mentioned earlier that healthcare is very local, it's very market dependent. So some of these things are very market dependent and local. And so what we're what we need is really a unified platform where we can support physicians and practices and schedulers and medical assistants in making high value cost efficient decisions on a repeatable daily basis. And this, you know, these are things like ordering generic medications. These are 
These are like doing procedures in the lower lowest cost setting or uh, getting imaging tests and lab tests done at the lowest cost setting that gives you the same quality or high quality. Over time, thinking about how do we how do we emulate as if we have an integrated delivery system? How do we get those same outcomes regardless of what kind of organizational structure you have? And, and do that by supporting decisions at the point of care. And the majority of that work is being done in the context of what I'm going to call non-financial incentives. So this is you know, the way that we uh, manipulate, manipulate maybe the wrong, right, not the right word, the way that we actually change the choice architecture, for example, the way that we use data as, as an asset, as a real tool, to, as an agent for practice change. Uh, paired with some targeted financial incentives as well. And so, you know, we're, we're trying to activate a whole slew of these behavioral economic principles. Uh, so uh, for anybody who's interested, uh, Zeke Emanuel, Kevin Volpe, and myself, along with a number of other authors, uh, actually published a paper in the Annals of Internal Medicine, gosh, maybe now about five years ago, where we laid out a framework for, here's a number of different behavioral principles that can work in the context of clinician behaviors. And you know, more or less, we're stepping through those through those principles and saying, how do we harness those for a variety of different deci decisions, and how can we how can we harness those to really try to impact the cost of care to make healthcare more affordable and reliably high quality? Dr. Amol Navathe, uh, co-founder of Embedded Healthcare, thanks for joining me on the ACO show today. Thanks for having me, Joe. It was a pleasure.